welcome to Tech Law Talks. I am Anthony Diana, a member of Reed Smith's Tech and Data Group. In each episode of this podcast, we will discuss cutting edge issues on technology, data, and the law. We will provide practical observations on a wide variety of technology and data topics to give you quick and actionable tips to address the issues you are dealing with every day. Welcome back to Tech Law Talks. I'm Christine Gartland, an associate in the Reed Smith Tech and Data Group. And with me is Catherine Castaldo, counsel in the same group. And we are here today to talk about the new NIST software supply chain security guidance. On February 4th, 2022, the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST for all of us who know, published guidance to assist federal agencies in performing diligence on software producers regarding their secure software development practices. Although this was drafted to assist federal agencies in their software procurement processes, it's also helpful to guide entities in the private sector during their procurement processes as well. So not not limited to government operations at all. Under the new NIST guidance, software producers who sell to federal agencies will likely be asked to provide a conformance statement attesting that their software development processes contain secure software development framework practices as as defined within NIST. And although not required, a summary of the secure software development activities may be provided in that statement. These secure software development framework practices fall into four main categories. The first being preparing the organization, the second, protecting the software, third, producing well-secured software, and fourth, responding to vulnerabilities. Now, Kat, with respect to these four categories, what do you think that software procurers should prioritize as best practices when performing diligence on their software providers? Yeah, thanks, Christine. I think what's really important is a a holistic statement from the software developer that attests to the security of the development and the security of the integration to the extent that the developer is going to assist the organization in the integration. From the respect of the procurer, the important aspect is how do I get it integrated into my system and not introduce new vulnerabilities into that environment? So they want some assurance that the software has been developed over time with a secure framework which can either be represented by the attestation or through secure development practices that they can demonstrate to the procurer. And then they need help in the integration to make sure that they don't introduce those vulnerabilities. The days where we could just plug and play are gone, I think, in this sense, because even though this is only guidance, uh, we all are aware of you know major things like SolarWinds, NotPetya, and others where software was the issue that created the vulnerability. So all procurers and all entities that integrate software, either through, you know, a, a, a SaaS or a, a SaaS environment or through actual software integration into their product offering, need to be mindful of security and need to understand how it fits into their overall organization's security posture so that they don't introduce new vulnerabilities into their environment when they utilize software to improve their environment. Right. And the guidance also advises agencies, and we've certainly advised in the past our our private sector clients, to complete risk assessments of their software suppliers and determine if additional steps are necessary to adequately mitigate security risk that could be introduced by these suppliers. So when conducting those risk assessments of software suppliers, what practical considerations would you recommend taking into account? 
The key factors for performing a risk assessment on suppliers, I think for the procurers, is to determine what sort of use they're going to make of the software, what sort of data they're using, because we have to adopt a data-first approach. And the data really dictates the level of security. So for your most either risky data because of a legal obligation or because it is the most important data from a business perspective to your organization, then that is going to warrant the highest level of security. For other other types of software integrations that don't necessarily warrant the same level of security, and, and from that perspective, then there can be a more relaxed standard, so long as that software doesn't then open the organization to vulnerability. And that's sort of where we get into the vulnerabilities that impact the Internet of Things. Anything with an IP address, of course, is capable of being hacked. So there are lots of areas where an organization needs to be aware of their security posture, but in a software environment, it's definitely the type of data that's going into it that warrants the level of security necessary and the type of assessment that needs to be undertaken in order to make sure that that data remains secured. And the NIST guidance also recommends that federal agencies, and as relevant to many of our clients, private businesses can draw lessons from this as well to negotiate for representations from software developers with respect to their security practices. Now, I know that we will typically recommend drafting and asking for representations from counterparts, including software developers regarding the development practices and vulnerability testing that goes into the development of software. But do you have any additional recommendations for representations that procurers should ensure in their agreements with software developers? I mean, there are limitations on every organization, but the more sophisticated and the larger the organization, I think it's more incumbent upon them to be more proactive in this space. Instead of just drafting contractual provisions that are likely never to be revisited, there needs to be an active review of security practices around the integration of software and any other aspect really that opens up vulnerability into their own system. Because one would, you know, they should have a practice already where they have an assessment of their own system as part of their own security profile. And then anytime you integrate something into that, you need to make sure that that integration doesn't materially change that profile and that it is an acceptable level of risk for that organization. So I think it's time to get everybody at the table. It's not just uh, for legal to draft the appropriate contractual provisions and for security to manage everything on the back end once it's been integrated. I think legal and security need to have more conversations about what's possible to obtain ahead of time, what's possible to obtain during the negotiations process, what sort of checks and balances they want to do once the contract is completed. And then if somebody either in a compliance role or a security function, or even sometimes in a you know hybrid legal role, performing those checks, or at least a cert, uh, making sure that the things that they negotiated for are being delivered. So if you negotiated to receive periodic security audits or to perform periodic desk site audits or to perform periodic on-site audits, that those things are actually happening because that's Part of the assessment of reasonable security when the breach happens on your side of the fence, but it's because of a vulnerability that you introduced to the system, you have an obligation to have done the things you could have done to ensure that things were as reasonably secure as you could have made them. One of the things that organizations need to think about from that perspective is have they done their checks against what was represented to them? Did they perform the audits? Did they review the materials that were available to them? Did they ask for the SOC 2? Did they ask for you know their, their application to a security framework like NIST or ISO? And frequently, you know, we see shortcomings on both sides of the table. So 
there is improvement to be made across the board. And, and when you're not doing enough, any step you make in the right direction is, is better than what you were doing yesterday. So people shouldn't feel like it's insurmountable. They should just start to, to do better as much as they can and to lobby their organization's leadership in order to make this a reality because the cybersecurity issues that are plaguing corporations today and that are constantly in the news because of the you know political and, and unrest and other issues that are going on around the globe. So the board is aware of it at that level and the lower level people in the organization need to need to be able to communicate both up for what they can do and also across the table to make sure that they are not introducing new problems, They're trying to address the issues they already have. Right. And to your point, though, this is not included in the NIST guidance per se, but something that we frequently discuss is ensuring that your organization has sufficient cyber liability insurance or reviewing your current coverage with respect to cyber liability and examining it for sufficiency in the face of new and increasing cyber threats that entities encounter and also reviewing those policies for cyber-specific coverage limits or exclusions. As we've discussed, a cyber liability insurance policy is an important risk mitigation mechanism, but it's only as good as the exclusions that you allow to be included. And what do you think, Kat, is driving this push both from the Biden administration, but also from individual private sector entities towards this new increased focus in cybersecurity defenses? Well, it's because we realize how vulnerable our critical infrastructure is, I think. Um, and that means everything from, you know, hydroelectric and hydro in general, just water plants, our, our supply chain and the energy sector, the ability of our networks to function because they're so integrated with each other. And then something as simple as, as food delivery, which um, isn't simple at all, but, but sounds simple from perspective of, but when you disrupt it, you know, you can cause major disruption in people's lives. And then that can in itself create social unrest and challenges wherever it happens. So because of the way the world operates today in a very, you know, internet and interconnected way, cybersecurity has to take center stage. And to go back to the point about cyber liability coverage, a lot of companies obtain cyber liability coverage as a result of a contractual requirement at some point, but then frequently it doesn't get revisited until times of crisis. And I, we'd like to begin to be more proactive in that area too for our clients and, and get them to address those cyber liability questions in a time when they are, it's not absolutely necessary because they may find that the coverage that they obtained previously to resolve a problem or to or to you know make a contract go through is really insufficient for what they need it only covers a portion of the organization they they really aren't willing to pay their portion of the exclusions on the policy it doesn't cover enough systems they haven't implemented all the things that the insurance carrier required at this time and so therefore the coverage really isn't as protective as it should be and it may contain you know harmful language to the client as to exclusions and things like that at bottom you should review consistently review your own cybersecurity practices and those practices of your vendors to make sure that you are not introducing new risks and that can be guided by these new NIST guidelines, as well as established cybersecurity standards, including the ISO or PCI DSS audit frameworks. And I think the important point to take out of this guidance document is that it, it opens the conversation and provides a common language for both the software developers and the procurers to discuss security in a way that maybe they haven't been able to before. And that's why I think we go back to the point that we raised earlier, which is everybody needs to come around the table and work together. There is legal liability here. There is a best practices framework. There is the responsibility of having 
security within the entirety of the organization, including software that you may introduce to satisfy insurance carrier requirements. So lots of different components at every level of the organization need to be able to communicate with each other and with any contracting party when you're trying to introduce something new into the organization like this. Thanks very much. And to everybody out there, thank you very much for listening to Tech Law Talks, and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you. Tech Law Talks is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's tech and data practice, please email techlawtalks at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com and our social media accounts at Reedsmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.